Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy, successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with business owners, executives, and retirees for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. This week on the podcast, we have an extra special guest, Mary Childs, author of The Bond King, which shares the inside story of PIMCO and its legendary founder, Bill Gross, dubbed The Bond King for creating the bond management industry and outperforming in that space for so long. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, Mary. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. We really enjoyed your book here, The Office, The Bond King. Uh, and I've, you know, I've read it a couple of times. Our members of our investment team have. And I think there's a lot of interesting things. Obviously, Bill Gross is a fascinating character. He's been ubiquitous in the industry for as long as I've been in it. I think there's also a lot of uh, lessons for individual investors to learn. Uh, when you were thinking about writing this book, how did mm-hmm. you explain it to people outside the industry, friends or family, why you <laughs> wanted to write it, who Bill Gross was? Like, How would you introduce Bill Gross and, and, and the idea of this book to the world? It's a funny question because I feel like I was very bad at answering it for a long time because it was sort of overwhelmingly enormous and sprawl. Like the project itself, I'm like, I'm going to tell everybody about the bond market who doesn't already know. And then I'm also going to have cool secrets for people who do know the bond market. And I will say that, um, you know, initially I was like, oh, you know, this is part of like sprung from my day job at Bloomberg News. So people were kind of used to me like yapping about um, what they perceived to be boring things, but I um, would try to sell them on it. Um, so I was like, you know, it's about the bond market and the guy who like created it. And it's like so cool. And they're like, all right, all right. And then over the years, Bill kind of inadvertently made my job easier by making headlines. Yep. So there was definitely a moment, you know, in 2014, people were like, oh, I think I kind of heard about that. And then in like 2018, they were like, is that the guy who had that really bad divorce? And I'm like, uh-huh. uh-huh. And then now it's the Gilligan's Island thing with his neighbor. So every time he got in the news, it actually, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that guy. Um, and that made my pitch easier to kind of lay people. But, you know, bond market people were like, you're writing the book about Bill Gross, like very, very excited and and kind of a natural, um, natural audience there. Yeah, he kind of did some advanced publicity for you towards he the did. end of his career. Yes. Really nice of him. Yes. Yeah, and and he wrote his own book and published it two weeks before mine, which I very much appreciate. Did you really? Did that help or did that? Did you feel that kind of cannibalize things? I mean, you know, you think about the theory behind like, market cannibalization and like there are studies that show that when starbucks opens a starbucks across from another starbucks it boosts sales and i have to think he did that for me like i don't think that was his end goal um but i do think that you know i think he was trying to like have his own narrative which like more power to him he absolutely should and i'm glad that he did that for like himself as well as for i'm pretty sure it helped my case great so let's look at the uh positive arc of his career you know Mm -hmm. bill gross as you explained it really well he really pioneered bond trading and active bond management as we yeah. know it um, from how you describe it in the book as, you know, starting pretty small at a job where the work wasn't that stimulating. So how did he get to being the bond king by 2002? Yeah. So um, the the market when he began uh, was this sleepy kind of um, safe and stable place. You know, the only way you could really lose money was if you lent money to a company that then defaulted and could not pay that money back to you, which, you know, life happens. That's not unheard of. But 
the world that Bill Gross helped to create was one where you traded bonds, where you know you thought, okay, this bond, I don't like this company as much as I used to, or this yield isn't high enough for me to hold it. I'm going to swap it with my friend over here in you know Indiana, and they're going to give me a new bond. They have some better bond that I like better, or I'm just going to go to market and get a new bond you know, at issue, whatever it may be. And that introduced this this dynamic, this much more volatile dynamic of making this, you know, a full and robust secondary market, and all of the kind of dynamics that that go with that. Of you know, now there's distressed debt investing. Now there's you know, there's the bond vigilantes of all the different generations, you know, um, putting pressure on governments for their their fiscal strategies and their budgets. And I think that, you know. Bill's influence in that market does spring from his um, being so early and being so foundational to the creation of it and his talent. You know, he was an incredible trader and uh, a very, you know, very good at kind of translating to a certain extent the mechanics of the bond market and what he saw and the Fed's, you know, uh, the Fed's machinations in the market and the dynamics that that would, you know, cause all of this stuff. He was pretty good at packaging and translating for lay people and did that on Wall Street Week, the PBS show. And that ended up, I think, helping him be the face of the bond market and just like ride that growth and, and kind of be able to put all of that kind of like that became part of his persona. As an investor, how, how did he achieve that initial success? I mean, what, what was his kind of pioneering ideas or approaches that hadn't happened yet? I think he was super early to a lot of different asset classes and and products. For example, mortgages was a big one. Um, PIMCO was just enthusiastic about mortgages where everyone else, not everyone else, but many other um, buy side in particular institutions, you know, you know, you read, you know, Michael Lewis, you know, all about the sell side stuff, but on the buy side, Bill and PIMCO were really early and really just into it. You know, there's a complexity to mortgages. There's a, there's kind of like they enjoy, I think, having a lot of different levers to pull and having a lot of different, like just a lot of maneuverability. And they found that in mortgages. And the fact that they were early and understood them gave them an edge for like decades. And that was also true. I think they were early in EM. They were early in, um, you know, using derivatives and options and, and um, you know, credit default swaps and and kind of embracing those as well. Um they, there's this one part in my book where they literally lobby their clients to allow them to use derivatives because there's this like extremely yeah. wonderful trade that's just sitting there that they can effectuate, but they have to get that permission first. And everyone's like, I don't know, I'm a pension, you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the early 80s. I'm uncomfortable. But because they opened the door to that, it really allowed them to do a lot more than a lot of other buy side institutions were able so do you think, I mean, that edge being really bright, being early on asset classes, do you think if he was starting out today, he would still have that type of edge and that type of success? Or are we in a more efficient marketplace and it, it may not have been possible to discover many new things? So I think that he he would bring the same spirit of innovation. And of course, the landscape is wildly different. And yes, we are in a much more efficient time, but I feel like he'd be a Web3 guy, you know? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like he's not not and you know he's on the other side of his career and he's already like I bought bitcoin like you know he gets it so i think he would bring that same spirit to the landscape that we have today and yes he would absolutely find fun things to do so um you know there's one thing that i i found really fascinating about your book is looking at the great financial crisis and the you know 2008 crash through the eyes of a bond manager. And, mm. you know, I'd obviously been working with clients back then and coming out of it, I, I tried to devour every single book about that time period that I could. I, I eventually ran out of steam. But yours was, <laughs> I think, the only one that I recall that looked at it through the lens of a bond manager 
and a bond team that saw the crash coming and made their clients money out of it. Um, mm. t- talk to me a little bit about that. I think as early as 2002, they had people at PIMCO warning about the shadow banking crisis. And, and these guys in 2006 were putting out pieces, hey, something bad is, is coming. How, how did they know that? And, and what, did, what benefit did it have for their clients? Oh, yeah, it was enormous. The thing you're citing in 2002, you know, Paul McCauley was aware of this economist, Hyman Minsky, who at the time was kind of a deep cut. I feel like people know more about him now. But he it was this idea that, you know, the further we get from the last recession, the more and more and more we reach for yield, basically. You know, you and I know this concept well now, but I think it was is it's this there comes a point when we're all reaching for yield because we forgot that the last crisis was so bad and we like are losing the kind of uh, muscle memory or scarring from that um, and thinking, well, that's a little bit more risk, that's a little bit more risk. And eventually there comes a, po- a point in that cycle where, you know, some catalyst happens or just the amount of risk itself is too much for, for the system to bear. And there's a Minsky moment is what Macaulay, Macaulay called it. And it's it's this moment where it can't the system can't handle it anymore and things start to turn and you get a market crash. And that thinking, that framework was pretty powerful and relevant in the run-up to the financial crisis. You know, that was exactly what happened. And McCulley also spotted, as you say, the shadow banking system and was able to see it for what it was in a way that regulators did not and a lot of other market participants did not. And I think, you know, that mortgage familiarity also gave them a leg up in in seeing the crisis coming. You know, this was a mortgage because it was a mortgage crisis. Exactly. Crisis, yeah. So, you know, they were, they like lived in the space already where this thing was going to go down. So I think they were super early to that, but but you've hit on something that I love where it is such a different perspective from the stock market where you know, you're kind of on a roller coaster in the stock market. It's up, it's down, like you can go all the way down, like you know, it's a little bit more unusual you're going to go to zero in the bond market. Um but but the thing that I that I like the most about the way they played the crisis trade was you know, you think about the big short type of trades that we think that we like know and love in popular culture, and they're so risky. You know, they're like, oh, I think that the market's going to crash right now, not tomorrow, right now. And right. You're like, oh my God, like that is a terrifying yeah. thing to try to call. Like Howard Marks would not want you to be doing that. Like you're not supposed to try to call it, right? Yep. And that's like reckless. And Pimco on the other side, you know, they're like, mm, we don't really know when, you know, they were a little early to call it. They sat there for like a long time underperforming, waiting for this thing to happen. But because they had pulled back on risk, they were able to capitalize when the markets did crash. And that's a much more informed trade, right? Like that's a, that's a much more, I don't know, like risk, risk off. Like you're just actually taking informed risk and you're able to stretch that over more quarters too. You're not making $1 billion in like one minute and then it's over. You know, you have a longer runway for your trade to work out because you've managed to, you know, position yourself in a way that you can jump on all of those extreme deals when everyone else is doing a fire sale because they're panicking. Sure. But but also less upside than the people who are gambling that they've got it right that exact moment exactly. are doing it through equities and things that could go to zero. Exactly. For every Michael Burry that we know of, there are probably, I don't know, based on conversations I've had in the aftermath of the crisis, 100 other Michael Burrys were like, I saw it coming. I just couldn't time it. Like, I know, like, that's the thing that you, you, you probably shouldn't try to time it. So you have up until this point, uh, Bill Gross is managing PIMCO total return. I believe it's the largest bond fund. Um, they they have this call. They've had you know tremendous outperformance for an extensive period of time. It's literally on everybody's 401k plan investment yep. option. Yep. And they start to underperform a little bit, waiting for what they're seeing. 
at that point, did their investors hang in with them um, and, and wait it out? They did. Yes. Okay. Yeah. In part because, you know, total return had done so well for so long and they weren't, you know, the extreme, they were, it was an enormous bond fund, but it was like the beloved by pensions, beloved, but like the people that were clients were sticky. They're not the kind of people that are trading in and out. They didn't just arrive on the scene. You know, they didn't hear about PIMCO on the news. They were like, you know, in it to win it. I feel like maybe they did hear about it on the news because, because of course, Bill was sort of that, that face. But I just think it was a different type of fame and clientele where they, they were just sticky and they were like, okay, I hear you. You you have a call. You're not doing that bad. Like it was not great, but it wasn't that bad. And if you have that kind of enormously long track record of having delivered out performance, your clients are going to be a little stickier. Yeah, no, understood. And and I, I look at kind of PIMCO and gross, th- this fund in, in three eras through your book. One is the one that we, we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the next era is a little bit of still doing well, but with a little controversy attached to it, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, um, you know, um, some of the pushing the, the certain trades on, on CNBC, forcing the government to basically um, make explicit the, uh, the guarantees for GSEs, yeah. Think, yeah. things of that nature, still outperforming, but still, you know, just a little bit more hair on the story, I guess. I don't know how oh, best absolutely. to describe it. I don't want to put words yeah. in your mouth. But, <laughs> but what's that few years like where, you know, they're they're coming out of the crisis, but they're still doing well and, and gathering more national attention for what they're doing? So this is an interesting period where you have a little bit of a lag in um, their perception and what they experience, right? So they are on the national stage in a way that they'd never been before. And they're like loving it, right? Like this, they're on top of the world. They're so influential. Like, as we were saying, the mortgage market is where all this happened. They had the expertise. So in many ways, the government had to call them for advice, for ideas, for what to do. And also the government didn't have to call them because as you say, they were on CNBC making very well known what they think should happen in this market and in that. And, you know, that's a lovely place. Bill Gross had long sought this kind of uh, influence, but more so fame. And being that household name is exactly what he wanted. So we're, you know, we're so happy to be here. This is, we're riding high. But of course, anytime you're kind of at this kind of pinnacle, I think the the seeds of the of the downfall are already being sown, right? Yep. And in this case, it is it is this this moment where you know you have Muhammad Alarian come in as um, co CEO and then eventually just sole CEO, and it's it's a different kind of management, you know, like. If you have a place that's very bottoms up and does investment analysis and, you know, you know, bond by bond, just trying to get through the documents and, and know all of the indenture, all this stuff. And then you also have this bottom, the the kind of top down. So that's the, the PIMCO always talks about this dichotomy, bottoms up and tops down. And the macroeconomic stuff was always kind of an aesthetic choice. They were always kind of like, yeah, yeah this is our macro call. Like it just was less what they did and less kind of how they thought about it. But, you know, they're so big. They're buying so many bonds. They have this enormously macro person at the helm. And this is the era in which um, my sources told me that they started to eat their own cooking, where they started to kind of believe their own hype and say, you know, we're these thought leaders. We, We really see around corners. And you could maybe say it's hubristic. You could say that this is this is where we're starting to fly too close to the sun. Um, this is when we, you know, Bill Gross makes his big famous treasury call where he not only sells entirely out of treasuries, which is just really off market, really enormous as a call, but he also goes short. So he's effectively betting. Like, it's just so kind of unfathomable. Like, no one does this. 
And it is just to back up, treasuries uh are a huge portion of the benchmark that they compare themselves to. So, and every other fund is going to have at least a treasury. Like, I it's just like unfathomable to have like no treasuries. So yeah, and and I think you know it's it's funny because Bill has you know spent decades at this point building a reputation as a risk manager, saying, "Oh, I played poker and I learned how to play the system and when to bet you know just enough, how to bet just enough at a given time when you know the odds are in your favor." Yada yada. That's like his legend. And then all of a sudden he's like, "Yeah, I'm going to zero actually negative treasuries in the world's biggest bond fund. It'll be fine." Like that is such a deviation from robust risk management and informed risk. And you know what I mean? So I think that's a moment where you start to see we're off, we're getting off course a bit. And um, you you mentioned uh, wanting to be famous. And and in your book, there's a a segment where that's like his favorite interview question for uh, potential new employees to to stumble. Is it, you? would you rather be famous, rich, or what what was the third one? Power. Yeah. Power. Okay. And his answer was fame. Was fame. Yeah. Which is funny because like, why'd you pick money management, bro? But like, that's a real, yeah. that's where he thrived. That was his skill set was, you know, it was going to work in bonds. So this was the vehicle that would, that would get him to the destination of fame. And I think that, you know, this is, he liked the question because it made people uncomfortable. You know, they're like, uh, what am I supposed to say? Like, I don't know. I want money, I guess. Like, and that's the normal, I guess, financial market answer. But Bill, you know, you can see this this motivation throughout his career. And he was very open about it, which is also kind of remarkable that he was self-aware enough to know that this was the thing motivating him and would tell you all about it. So so this starts kind of, we kicked it off a little bit, this third era uh, where there is some underperformance, there are mm-hmm. some cultural issues at PIPCO. It's the, mm-hmm. basically the the downfall. Um, I, I I was thinking about it in in this terms that it, basically th- this was the peak. You know, when once they started their um, uh, new normal call, mm-hmm. um, which turned out not not to be correct, and they're fighting yep. over you know who, you know who came up with it. Um, mm-hmm. Should have trademarked it. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of hilarious. Um, what 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 do you think drove that? I mean, as I look at it from from my lens. You know, when you pick a manager or you pick a mutual fund, you pick a product, you want some kind of repeatable process. You you want to understand how right. they're managing money and that it can be replicated. And uh, is it the fact that they basically had one guy making calls and that's not very repeatable or is, or is it deeper than that? I think it's kind of deeper than that. I think it is you know, they had a very clear delineation of staying in each other, like out of each other's lanes. Like you, you had a lane as, you know, Bill Gross was CIO, Bill Thompson for ages was CEO and nobody interfered with anybody else. And that kind of, you know, they, they divided that up. You know, there was a client services pod and, and the fact that you're able more than at other places, I think able to just focus on what you're doing, like the client services, people do client services and they don't, you know, they can explain stuff really well, but they aren't trading and the traders don't really have to meet with, you know, and that was by design. That's like partially reflective of Bill's personality um, and some of the other founders as well. And like that starts to fall apart. Right. And I think the lack of, you know, with, with the kind of what they called a three-legged stool of those, you know, client business and trading, um, Bill was coming up with the other two, the two founders that were with him. And when they left, I do think that there was kind of a dearth of people who'd be like, hey, Bill, this is a bad idea. Hey, Bill, this isn't going to work. Okay. You need that kind of, you know, if you're surrounded, you know, classically, if you're surrounded by yes men, you're just going to, your worst ideas are going to be, you know, take up all your time because you're like excited about your dumb idea and you're going to pour money into it and it's just not going to work. And to some extent, you know, 
Muhammad Alarian came in to uh, expand the offerings to help Pimco expand into other asset classes and other products. And Pimco had never really succeeded that hard at, say, equities. They just like don't have the institutional stance. They just aren't. It's just like not fertile ground for for equities to thrive. And they keep they kept trying. And it was obviously a great time, you know, if you wanted to launch an equities business in March 2009. Like literally, congratulations, you would have <laughs> done amazing, or you should have. And they just kind of didn't. And I yeah, think it that like, this it was like a confusing half baked approach to it. And it's Bill really was weird down stocks during that time. Bless his heart. I know. Yeah. He like never really loved stocks. Like he would occasionally get into it, but then he would always be like, oh, they, they're terrible. And they're, you know, they're going to zero. Animal spirits are dead forever. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, he does the same to the bond market. But I think um, given the insecure status of equities at PIMCO, it was a little bit more harmful for, <laughs> yeah. for that equities business. So yeah, like in this period, he starts to kind of, I don't want to say get distracted, but there's a deviation from what had always made them so successful. You know, in in my mind, it was I always really like his his framing of structural alpha. It's what he called the the ways in which he was able to outperform. And they were, to your point, replicable. They were things that you could just keep doing forever. Um, only in a falling rate environment, maybe a little bit, but you know, I think you could pick your spots in a, in a more volatile situation. Um, but you know, moving away from that kind of replicable and, uh, lower risk, at least informed risk strategy to like, let me sell all of my treasuries. You, you do have, you know, uh, not only a firm that's like struggling to find its footing and struggling to like get that balance of power. Right. And I think Bill didn't notice the shift in the balance of power. Um, but also just what are we what are we doing here? This is not what we you know, this is not like the history of the firm. This is not the 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 thing that had built the firm. Yeah. So you're you're really attributing it to more the culture around him and, you know, some of the stronger voices who I think so, you yeah. know, receded. And mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. I mean, at one point I, I am. um I was very surprised reading about the culture. I guess at one point there was somebody, mm -hmm. I don't know if it was a joke or they were saying, you know, one of our one of our questions should basically be, were you abused as a child and did you like it? One of mm -hmm. our questions. Mm -hmm. um, they kind of had a a, a tough, not 2022 culture at PIMCO. It was not 2022. I think that's fair. And I'm a little embarrassed to report that the response I've gotten is like, Oh, it was so much worse than this. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I know. I'm like, dear God. I mean, I know that there are things that I left out in part because like sometimes narratively, you don't want to just like open a door to a whole thing because it's like, here's a little rabbit hole. Let's go down. You know, if it's not serving the like gist of the story, it doesn't really make sense to distract everyone. But, you know, it's also like I heard um, an anecdote after a publication where um, someone was interviewing for a job as a trade assistant on the on the floor and the like it was like a hiring agency and the hiring agency person was like um <clears throat> so this is great this your resume looks great like thanks so much um how do you feel about abuse emotional and um mental and i was like i i mean i the guy who said that in the 90s that you're quoting from the book like i guess i assumed this is in like the 2000s and i guess i assumed that it got less explicit like it got less literal and yet you have a hiring you know a hiring agency saying exactly the same thing I'm like, okay, so you know, I think it's probably better now because legally they would have to be. But <laughs> so, do you and do you think the culture contributed to some of the the, the downfall, the challenges, you know, Bill's exit, um, just things not working out towards the end? 
Yes, absolutely. So he had built a culture where you're as good as your last trade. And if you can't defend yourself, like you're out, you're you're done. And I think that that came back to bite him. Yep. Um, that just, you know, it undermines your power almost entirely, even if you were the founder. Um, there's also the kind of cruelty of the culture. I think the difference between the bill gross of everyday, you know, everyday PIMCO on the trade floor, getting ideas from people versus the mediagenic sort of eccentric oddball, but like very charming and endearing guy on television. I think the distance between those two things was really deleterious. When when those stories started to come out, not only was it like horrible PR that, P- that Pimco had to recover from, I think Bill was really ill-equipped to recover from it. I think he like, I think it just started this spiral and he's so sensitive to that media image and so cares about what people see. Like he didn't actually want fame. He wanted adoration. You know, and I think that you can never get that, first of all, like that's we all know that. Um, And I think Bill knew that rationally. But once that story started to change and people were like, oh, my God, I thought he was this cute guy on TV, like talking about, you know, the Phillips curve or whatever. And you're like, no, no, it's a little different. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little the day to day experience of Bill is not is not that that guy. I think that really upset him. Yeah. And, and um, you know, there's one uh, fascinating character in the book that I wanted to spend uh, a couple minutes on with you, and that's Muhammad Alarian, who you've already referenced. Yeah. Um, you, you know, and we work with individual investors at, at Heritage. And, you know, a lot of times Muhammad is ubiquitous on CNBC, right? He's oh, on yeah. in the mornings. Um, what should people watching him on CNBC know about Muhammad Alarian? Who is he? And, you know, what type of investor is he? Yeah, so um many things to know about Muhammad and it's hard to it's hard to curate here because um you know it's a 300 page book but I will try. So he's an economist. He um came up in kind of the the academic world. He was aiming to be an academic at first and then uh, some life events sort of changed his trajectory. Um and then he came, you know, he worked at Pimco in the emerging markets desk and had a really great trade. Um actually two really great trades, but I spotlight the Argentina trade in the yep. book yep. where everyone else had Argentina bonds and Muhammad Alarian sold them. And then Argentina went bankrupt and Muhammad Alarian looked really smart. Very straightforward. Makes yep. sense. But no one, I mean, very few people caught that or saw it coming. Um, and then he went to Harvard, uh, the, the endowment at Harvard. And then he came back to PIMCO as co-CEO, co-CIO. And I think that, you know, there are a couple different things, but most notably to me here, the personality differences with Bill are so acute. Right. So Muhammad is like polished and polite and diplomatic. His father was literally a diplomat. And Bill's like direct and just wants to get to the bottom of like, what's the trade? What's the go? What are we doing here? And that just natural difference, I think, I don't know if they could have served, if, if they could have survived and succeeded sure. just even with that. Um, and and I think this, this started to kind of manifest more acutely in 2013 in meetings where Muhammad's like saying economic things and Bill Gross is like, what do you mean? Like, what does that mean? Like, when you have someone saying, oh, the, uh, you know, the macro headwinds of this, you know, the the Eurozone is struggling to get and you're just and Bill's just like, well, what's the trade? So I think, you know, when you when you listen to Muhammad, you're going to learn about these like macro things. But to a trader like Bill Gross, that sounds like nothing. So I think, you know, that's the big to me, that's the curse of their relationship. They're just ne- I, I think they never would have gotten over that. That's a great summary of that because I watch him when I see him uh, on CNBC. I also think, 
boy, this guy's kind of gloomy. He's great at pointing out <laughs> trends and things that aren't really working out in the world. Never seems to be really fired up about an investing idea, a theme, or a market. Mm, yeah. Is that just the environment we're in, or is is he generally more that kind of, hey, here's what's wrong with the macro world, and let me tell you about it? That's funny you say that because I hadn't clocked that, but now that you've mentioned it, like I, it's true that I don't think I've ever heard him recommend like a trade. Maybe because that's not really his job. You know, he's always brought in as, you know, an economic, just like, give me the big, big picture here. But that being said, you know, and, you know, his book was like the only game in town about how the central banks around the world were. And that's absolutely true. Right. So, like, it's not that his ideas are are wrong by any stretch, but I do think that he's really good at clocking the consensus and kind of packaging it really well and clearly. And that's a huge skill. Right. That's a that's something that, you know, that's a very valuable skill. Um, but, yeah, it it is like just not going to fly at Pimco. It's a different, it's a different kind of approach, which isn't to say that he couldn't do those things. Obviously right. the Argentina call was a trade. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, it's harder to find those now. I don't, I don't hear those as much now. What do you mean? Sorry, by clocking the consensus. Oh, just like, I don't know. Like he's, he keeps a good finger on the pulse and the general, like if you like took the average, he can tell you like what everybody's thinking and he can, he, he'll he communicate it really well. And like, if you have 50 economists that are saying this and that and this and that, like he'll be able to kind of distill it for you and and say that kind of, uh, yeah, the average. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, you know, as, as we wind down here, um, I'd love to know, um, you know, did you enjoy writing the book? Um, do you think you want to do it again? Um, uh, do you have ideas floating around or is, what are you nuts? I'm, I'm just enjoying the downtime for a while. Um, that last part is, is okay. it. Um, the researching was kind of fun. You know, I learned about like extremely fun trades in 1983. I love that stuff. The writing of it went in phases. Sometimes I was like, wow, this should never see the light of day. <laughs> but that's the process of writing. I think that's, you know, universal. Um, I don't know. I think I certainly would. Uh, everyone's like, are you going to write a sequel? <laughs> no. No. Um, <laughs> no. I'm also not going to write about Jeffrey Gunlock. I'm not going to write about Citadel. Um, so I think, you know, I have some ideas for the next project, but I'm definitely taking some good long naps. In the meantime, awesome. yeah. So I I wrote a book, and somebody asked me, "How did you find the time to do it?" And I said, "Well, it took me twelve years." So right. I'm pretty sure right. I didn't find the time to. do I it. I think that's the <laughs> thing. Yeah, um, I, you make the time. Yeah, it and it's a little bit at a time. Correct. Um, what lessons do you think individual investors can take away from the Bond King from the book? I think the big thing for me was that. I was elated to find a strategy that I felt like I could wrap my head around and that made sense to me as to what Bill Gross was actually doing. Okay. And that was in that structural alpha stuff. So, you know, I've written about a lot of fund managers over the years. And part of the orientation of journalism that I think is like not great is that we're like, oh my God, this guy has a thought. Oh my God, he thinks that you should buy Apple or whatever. And maybe there's a robust explanation behind it, but so much of that is timing, is luck, is completely random, is not useful. And I have struggled because I'm like, how does this industry even work? Because this is dumb. Like, <laughs> There's just something fundamentally, I do not believe in stock picking, I guess. I don't know. Sure. And, <laughs> but you know, this, this is maybe an argument for like factor investing or like smart beta, God forbid. But um, the, the things that Bill identified, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Like you can, I see how that works and it works over time and you can keep doing it. And that makes more money. Like, okay. And I was just happy to find that. And the thing that I think is useful there is, there, it is possible to listen to an investment manager and be like, I think this guy's not making sense. Or 
I think this guy has is onto something. I think this person has an idea, has identified something real in the markets, and I'm going to follow them. I think that they're going to out. You know, you can actually discern for yourself to some extent. And like, I kind of thought that it was a lot of, you know, I was like an index fund person. I don't know that I'm not anymore, but no, I understand. But and then if you're going to do that, you need to be patient with them. Yes. But not blind because as you see exactly. changing at their firm or warning right. signals, that that that's that's an issue. But if you know you understand their call and it's not immediately panning out, you can't just jump ship. You, you need yeah, to Yeah, that sometimes they won't get the odds won't be in their favor and that's normal. Absolutely. Uh, what's one thing you would want people to take away about bond investing from our conversation? That it's interesting. People think of it as boring, but some people they're wrong. They're wrong. Some people consider bonds the smart money in the market. Do you agree? Yes. How come? Yes, of course. Um, I think part of it, I've been thinking a lot about this since the book came out, just having these kinds of conversations. And a lot of people, like, to some extent, it's the institutional stance of Bloomberg News. <laughs> like, I grew up at Bloomberg and, like, it's a bond place fundamentally. Like, that, you know what I mean? So I thought that I, like, had this clever, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm so smart. I love bonds. But I think I just grew up at a place that loved bonds. Um, but also, you know, <sighs> Our our financial markets reflect what we value, reflect what we think, you know, and, and that means like morality and like what we want our society to look like. And all of these choices not only are bound up in how we securitize things and how we build those structures uh, on purpose or not, but also it creates that. Right. So it's it's both both causal and the effect. So I think like the bond market is the most kind of um, overt place where you can see these levers of power expressed. And I think that that's like crucial to understand to exist in our world, to understand what's going on. And if you want to have a shot at changing it, you have to know what's going on and how it works. Awesome. Where can people stay in touch with what you do and, and find you? I'm on Planet Money, NPR's economics podcast. Um, I'm on Twitter, unfortunately, at, at MDC. <laughs> I love it there. Um, yeah. And I have a, a sub stack that I update annually. All right. So since the name of our podcast is Wealthy Behavior, what's mm -hmm. one wealthy behavior you regularly practice that you would recommend to others? This is embarrassing, probably, but um, it, it's like my environmental anxiety has caused me to uh, like my climate anxiety has caused me to do so many different things that are also cost saving. Like who needs paper towels? You don't need a paper towel. You can just use a like a rat. You have like towels. Just use those. Wash them. So there are like a billion different. You know, I have a hybrid car and I play this little game where I try to get the highest miles per gallon. It tells me at the end of my trip, you know, do you want to guess my highest? Uh, No, I don't. I'm OK, it's it's 80. Oh, wow. I was going to okay. say that made me sound. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> like, I'm so proud of myself. But like, that's very, very marginal daily practice. OK, but just things that are helping the environment. I hope, you know, I'm, I'm reducing those negative externalities that we forgot to price in. So you can't even really measure that in our world. That's awesome. I, we've been getting a lot of live below your means. So that's definitely uh, <laughs> one of the more interesting ones we've heard lately. Mary, thank you so much. Uh, big thank fan you. of your book. I really enjoyed this conversation. And if this you has do, been so fun. If you do decide to dive into another project, I will be uh, e eagerly awaiting it and wish you the best of luck. Thank you. I really appreciate that. All right. Thanks, Mary. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and sharing this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakadis.
This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.